Yes, Lord, move upon us. Move us to move with you. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we turn our eyes to the hope of heaven. Without you, there is no hope. We turn our eyes to the God of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for freedom that we have in you. Freedom to love. Freedom to express ourselves towards you and towards our neighbor. Come and move, Lord. Open our hearts this morning. Open our hearts this morning to hear from you, to receive what you have to say today. May your word come alive in us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for inviting me to share some thoughts from the book of Nehemiah, particularly from chapter 4. For those of you who don't know me, and I have been introduced, but I serve in Freyhrund as pastor to Capricorn Community Church, who sends their love to you, and we hope we'll be able to do something together sometime soon. Most of the folk call me Pastor B. They can't bring themselves to say Bernadette, and it's just the way it is. And I'm having the time of my life. I'm loving every bit. So is it easy work? No, not at all. But I tell you, if I was told I can't serve there anymore, I truly would be heartbroken. And so I sense that God has molded in me a good fit for the work that he's placed in my hands there. And I will always be grateful to PBC for supporting me and encouraging me, for those who journey with me, um, for equipping and sending me to live life in Christ in Frechrund. And um, it's also known as Capricorn. Um, the book of Nehemiah has given me a lot to think about and has taught me some valuable lessons, especially in the context of where I serve. So I want to recap by saying that we have learned that the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem in three waves after the Babylonian captivity, starting in the 6th century BC. And on their return, they discovered that the previously glorious city was in ruins. The temple had been destroyed, its wealth had gone, and there was corruption among those who were left behind, even among the priests. And so Zerubbabel, whose granddaddy was the last king of Judah, King Jehoiakim, led the first large group of Jews back to Jerusalem from Babylon, and he took to rebuilding the temple, and he faced much opposition. Now, it's very important that when we face opposition, we need to know the background story, what's going on. So it's a complicated issue. We read the story in Ezra, but um, Zerubbabel um, in his building of the temple, did not want anyone else except the Jews to build the temple, the pure Jews. And so the community wanted to offer to help. Maybe their motives were wrong, um, but he said, no, you can't help, only the Jews. And so the conflict, can you hear how conflict would have started? Zerubbabel's intentions were pure um, and in his eyes. And so there was so much conflict. Letters of complaint were sent. Money would have been rediverted to the temple. So there were more issues at stake. And the temple build was put on hold for a number of years before it was completed later. So the second wave of Jews to return were led by Ezra, who we've learned is the scholar of an Old Testament law and a teacher. And he took to rebuilding the community, both morally and spiritually. Stop sinning. Stop worshipping idols. Worship only God Yahweh. Keep God's laws and live in obedience to him. 
So this was a difficult task, and there was also more conflict. What was going on? Ezra was upholding the law. And in the time of the exile, the Jews had intermarried with pagan uh, worshippers and who worshipped other gods. And Ezra, upholding the law, said, no, you must separate. Families were separated. Relationships were broken. In our modern hearing, this is a hard word. But Ezra was um, walking in his best obedience to the Lord. But can you see how conflict was stirring? And finally, the third group of Jews returned to Jerusalem about 445 BC, and we know that it's led by Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer and trusted companion to Persian king Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was devastated when he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were still broken. Now, this challenged me. Why are we crying about walls? Surely there's better things to cry about. So Craig taught us. He said the enemies of Judah could just walk into the city and help themselves. Jerusalem had no protection. We learned that Jerusalem is exposed and vulnerable not only to the elements and to wildlife and to thieves. So people didn't want to build in the city their businesses and houses. They rather camped on the outside where it seemed to be safer. And the citizens couldn't hold court at the city gates and so there was no place to have justice. But key to my understanding, or what actually made sense to me, along with these, was that the wars caused the God's people to feel ashamed. You see, the Jewish remnant were a defeated people. The broken wall served as a shameful reminder that God had carried out the covenant curses that he had warned his people at length about. Because of their ongoing sin. So seeing the broken walls was a reminder that God had rejected his people, that he had cast them out of beloved Jerusalem and that he had handed them over to the enemy. And so the Israelites were meant to be the example to the other nations, the light pointing to the one true God, Yahweh. They were to show what a, a nation was in obedience to the Lord. And everyone could see that they had failed. This wall was down. And so they became the laughing stock before pagan nations. Where is your God, O oh Israel? Shame on you. Can you see the pain of the shame? So we've heard over the past few weeks that rebuilding a city and then rebuilding a nation is a lot of hard work, and it's full of conflict and complexities and troubles. And as Bevan mentioned before, God does not always remove the opposition. And we landed in chapter 3 last week, and we came across the most amazing detailed recording of where each priest and each family worked on the Jerusalem wall and gates side by side, uh, many um, in the sections closest to their homes. Great work was happening, but under disapproving eyes. Years and years of hostility had been brewing in the community from the time of Zerubbabel's return, and one could say that the pot of conflict had begun to boil. Can you understand? Yes, this makes sense to me. <laughs> I hope it works for you. So the first level of conflict rose up as they were building, and that was discouragement and threats. 
In chapter 2, we first see how Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and the Cheshem, the Arab, these are governors in the region, in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, mocked and ridiculed the workers of the wall, questioning their efforts. Aren't you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah answered them, and I love this. This is like a drop-your-mic moment. Chapter 2, verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. Say it, Nehemiah. Amen. Nehemiah, of course, had permission from King Artaxerxes. He had a letter saying that he could work and rebuild the wall. But here in chapter 4, we see that the opposition is at it again with discouragement. And the scorn has intensified as well as the anger and disbelief. So let's read Nehemiah 4 verses 1 to 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the ward, he became angry and greatly incensed. Actually, he was already angry. He ridiculed the Jews, and now watch this, in the presence of his associates and the army of Syria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day basically saying, are they looking for a miracle? Can they bring the stones back to life on these heaps of rubble, burnt as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite was at his side, and he said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it will break down their wall of stones. You can't even keep out a little fox. So now the, the discouragement has been ramped up in public, in front of an army. Now, I, this, this just struck me. Imagine the scene. Um, Tobiah is, is parading his military, um, it, sorry, Sanballat is, is parading his military strength in front of the Israelites, calling them weak and pathetic. You know, the thing with discouragement is that often it contains a little bit of truth. So the Jews who were repairing the walls were not experts. They didn't have Google DIY on how to build a huge city wall. But everybody was involved, and not all of them would have known what they were doing. I don't know, were they born knowing how to build a wall? I wouldn't. My wall would probably fall over, but I would need a community to help me. Being discouraged and criticized could have stopped the work altogether. How did Nehemiah deal with it? He doesn't form a committee. He doesn't enter debate. In fact, he doesn't address the opposition now at all. He just turns to God. And like the psalmist, he prays, hear us, O God, for we are despised. And then he says a whole lot of things that basically ask, give us justice. And they continue to repair the work. And in verse 6, it says that they're working with all their hearts. In fact, they're working with more passion and determination. This is the Lord's wall. The discouragement and the size of the enemy does not deter the people at work. But we see that the conflict escalates and the second level of opposition arises. Now there's plans of violence and disruption. Verse um, 7 to 8. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's war had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, see, they are making progress. They are very angry. Again, very angry. <laughs> Anger does not dissipate. It intensifies. They all plotted together and, uh, to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Please note the Philistines, the people of Ashdod, well known for their military strength, were now also joining the bandwagon. They were also complaining. So all the regions around Jerusalem were up and rising against the small remnant of the people in Jerusalem. 
conflict was gaining momentum. We were singing about justice rolling. Conflict was beginning to roll. So what did the workers do? Verses 9 to 10. But we prayed to our God and posted a God day and night to meet this threat. Now I want us to see this. There's prayer, but then there's action. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble and we cannot rebuild the wall. So rebuilding this wall was physically exhausting work. There were long shifts and people had got tired. The work conditions were also stressful with this violence stirring in the atmosphere. And God could have destroyed the enemy, but he didn't. The opposition seemed to draw the people closer to God. Did you see that? Return to God. But what God did do, and I love this, is that he exposed the tactics and battle plans of the enemy. What was meant to be kept in secret was brought into the light. And we know that when the power of darkness comes into the light, it cannot stand. God's light rolls back the darkness. And just look how the New Living Translation explains what happened in verses 11 and 12. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we're going to sweep down and we're going to kill them and end their work. But the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, 10 times over, it says in the NIV, they will come from all directions and attack us. So their plans of attack were known to God's people. Like Craig said, a good leader then adjusts the strategy. Nehemiah puts some steps in place to counter the threats. So he appoints armed guards to place them at the obvious points. He encourages workers to keep their weapons on them. He urged the workers to remember that the Lord is awesome and that they are to fight for their families. And he put a duty roster in place so that some worked on the wall and others stood guard. And because everyone was spread out and Nehemiah helped to calm the anxieties um, and by introducing a communication system. There was a trumpet. And so when the trumpet blast blew, then they would all gather as a full front against any trouble. They worked smarter, and with the Lord's help, they frustrated the plans of the enemy. The shifts were long. The work was hard. The danger was real. But the work of the Lord continued. And they were committed, and they were going to succeed. So now there's a lot of parallels that I'd like, but I'd like to share some points that stand out from the story of Nehemiah in relation to the context of Frechrant, where I work. My first point is related to brokenness. Frechrant is known as one of the oldest um, informal settlements in the Western Cape. I don't know if we've got a little map up there, a photograph. So across the way is Marina de Gama. Can you see where we are? And then, of course, not the whole um, area is shown. It's just the beginning of it. It started out as a little fisherman's village for trek fishermen who wanted to be near the beach. And generally, people have had a very uh, traumatic and difficult history. There's constant change happening, and it, particularly from um, the pressures imposed by apartheid. Um, there's a high unemployment rate, over 85%, and every day people are come to me asking for work. I hate it when people say, oh, they're lazy. It's not. People are desperate for work. Freyhorn consists of three areas. I was taught this. There's about 30,000 people there. Um, the stats are not accurate. We're waiting for more stats. So there's Capricorn, which are small houses with lots of little um, shacks built onto the property. Overcome Heights is a kind of informal settlement where hundreds of tin um, and wooden shacks have been built tightly together. 
And the third area is Trakabantu. It's the squatter area, which is constantly in conflict with the police and the army. Shacks are being demolished. People erect them up again. The community tries to defend these um, homes because people are homeless. And you will see many people spilling out onto the streets, the children and the youth hanging around. Um, it was hard. It's impossible to isolate in the community. You live five people in a little room, how do you isolate? So we spill out and we try our best. And you will hear lots of music playing all hours of the night and the day, different languages being spoken, English, Afrikaans, Tosa, French, Chichua, um, uh, Swahili and others. So it's vibey and colorful. And I found that the people have been very friendly and welcoming. I've really had no issues in fitting in. Isn't that a God work? <laughs> I love it. But as you look, you're going to see the effects of severe poverty. A lot of litter everywhere shows the struggle in service delivery. And if it rains, there's flooding, and there are many, many fires. And people are at risk of losing everything just in a moment. And I have met so many people in that situation. Crime and violence is a daily issue. There's active gangsterism and drug issues. Alcohol is a huge problem, as is domestic violence, prostitution, teenage pregnancies, school dropouts, and the breakdown in families and these other afflictions which just shout about brokenness in this community. The enemy has been at work too. But a lot of good work has been done in the community. There's Living Hope and Sozo and other church initiatives that have actually moved into the community to help with the rebuilding and investing in the lives of people. Even Lerata's Hope um, has been providing food for two of our kitchens since last year. Isn't that wonderful? And it's made a huge difference to hundreds of people. I asked our youth the other day, if I could give you every, all the money you want and every possible dream, what would you like us to put into, build into the community? And they said, well, we need to feed the people. It's like, what? Just feed the people. But that's, we're going to feed the honor. After we've fed and we, we can learn and whatever, then educate us and help us find jobs. So I was like, quite struck by that. Feed the people. So there's help in the community, but there's more needed to come in and build together. So I'm still on a steep learning curve and listening to the community as the newbie, as well as building relationship with God's people. So, you know, the building of the Jerusalem wall took a broken and contrite heart. Nehemiah wept and cried before the Lord. He confessed the sins of the people. He was moved by what he saw. It took prayer and more prayer and huge faith and vision and strategy to keep moving the people in action and perseverance to rebuild in spite of the visible presence of the enemy. So the same applies, the same applies to the work in Freyhront. I couldn't serve there if my heart was not right. So if you are serious about getting involved in rebuilding any part of our city, any part of our nation, so we need to bring our hearts before the Lord. Break my heart, Lord, for what breaks yours. Some of us need softer hearts. Our hearts are hard. Some of us need bigger hearts. Some of us need warmer hearts. We've grown cold and callous to hard, hearing people's hardship. Some of us need to have willing hearts. Whatever the condition of our hearts, we need to surrender it to the Lord. And we need to allow Him to give us the desires of our hearts because it will be His desires for us. Isn't that wonderful? 
Another lesson that I've learned is not to be afraid of brokenness. Yes, it's messy, but it's not without hope. We were singing about it earlier. Think about the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. The builders would have reused a lot of the stone that had been broken off in the first when it got damaged in the original wall. So what was lying in the rubble would have been repurposed into the rebuild. I don't think Nehemiah carried stones, and I don't think that they uh, had dug um, a huge quarry for stone. They used what was already lying on the floor, which had been broken. And it reminds me that God is an expert in mending brokenness. If you look at 1 Peter 2, 4-5, we learn about the living stone. He takes us spiritually broken and lifeless, lying in the rubble of our lives. He doesn't throw us away. He doesn't give up on us. He sees with eyes of love and with the potential for eternity. And he builds us into the temple of Christ, who is the living cornerstone. And we become living stones, reused repurposed for good, and there is no more shame. This is so exciting. May God give us the eyes to see with love the potential and the hope in each person, no matter their background or their circumstances. One of the teenagers I chatted to on Friday, um, he had written ink all over himself. I think he was thinking of places to do a tattoo. So I asked him to show me what he had written on his hand. And this young man has a life of hardship. And I asked him, and I said, um, and he showed me, and he said, I'm not what I've done. I am what I've overcome. And I thought this was pretty cool. And so then a conversation now can start about the one who has overcome the world. Gosh, God just opens the door moment, a God moment there for us. He opens the door. So I spend a lot of time in the week listening and praying with those who experience profound levels of brokenness. But the voice of the opposition has been loud for a long time. You'll never succeed. You are rubbish. I've heard people say that, by the way. Nothing can change, and all this is your fault. Shame on you. That's the voices they have heard throughout their history. So yes, we need to pray. But I also need to then do something practical. I need to find resources, anything I can do to bring relief, to encourage and strengthen. That's my responsibility. When I hear, I pray, but then I need to be moved into action. Nehemiah teaches that rebuilding requires that we pray, but also move to action. For example, and this is just one of many examples, an, an elderly lady would be brought off the street Go and speak to the pastor. She's coming in. She's dizzy because she's taken her blood pressure medication and she's had nothing to eat. And I asked her why she hasn't got food. She said, no, her grandson's on drugs, so he stole her money and she just hasn't eaten for a couple of days. And so she asks for prayer. Yes, I need to pray, but now I need to find a sandwich for her. And I also need to try and find a way to meet her grandson and offer him the opportunity to rebuild his life. And then I need to uh, find a way so that she can now have more food by joining one of the community kitchens. And then I need to introduce her to the social worker so that she can help her to guard her money more and so that she can have more security. So brokenness has hope when there's action. 
Yes, of course, prayers are powerful. God says so. The prayers of the righteous are powerful. But we also need to be moved to action. There's a, and, and she needs to be sent off with a whole lot of things put in place. So are you a great prayer, but you're not really into action in building? Or are you a great action person, but don't have time for prayer? We need to consider both. Both need to be involved in building. And what I love seeing in today's text is that everyone was involved in the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. So there's a place for you. There's a call for you to join in wherever that is. There's a place. In what section are you called to rebuild in the Lord's kingdom? Everyone. That's great. And I'm going to stop at this last point. From our text, we see that the opposition rears up with discouragement and threats of violence when God's people step out into action. So this is really small, but I started to notice God pointed out, like for a long time last year, we were still meeting in person. We don't have technology, or um, we have technology to meet in person, but not um, from home. And um, so while we have our services, um, the alarm goes off. And it's loud, and it rings constantly. 20 seconds, then it stops for a minute, then it rings throughout the whole service. It hasn't rung the whole of the week. Then the next week again, then the next week. And we're thinking, uh, uh, this is not good. And then the sewage bubbles up out of the floor right by the door. So now we've got children and youth clubs happening, and it's just sewage like falling across the parkway. And then suddenly in the service, the electricity goes off. Oh, is it load shedding? No, it's not load shedding. Hmm. Okay, so it's off, but we continue without any mic or anything like that. And then um, someone tells me, but now let's take a walk, because we looked for all the switchboards, everything was up. So we take a walk 200 meters down the road, there's an electrical box that's been opened, all the switches are up except the church one, which has been put down 200 meters down the road. And then the toilets don't flush one week. And it is huge, because we'll have like 60, 70 people on the premises in turns, and it's just like... Lord, what is going on here? This is so discouraging. But then this, God started showing me, you know, you need to take your stand. You need to pray. And then you need to learn about how to dismantle the alarm. You need to learn about how to switch on electricity. And as these plans of the enemy or opposition has risen, so things have calmed down because the Lord has revealed that we need to be aware and we need to take our stand in the community. And so we keep building. Let's put these things to prayer. His Father, you invite us and you call us to rebuild broken walls in society. All of us are invited to bring our hearts before you. Lord, look at the attitude of our hearts. Prepare our hearts for work of rebuilding. Lord, there is hope in brokenness if we're moved to action. And so, Lord, as we pray and as we listen to you, as we see people in need, as we see brokenness across our city, move us, Lord, to listen to you and then to act. Lord, we know that the opposition is real, but we put our trust in you because you reveal the plans and the schemes of the enemy and it will come to naught. Lord, thank you that you see our work. Thank you for teaching us how to persevere through your Holy Spirit. And truly, surely, Lord, the God of heaven will give us success. Bless us today, Lord, as we go out in your name. May your light shine brighter this week. May we look for opportunities to bring justice. 
to bring light, to share love, and to treat our neighbor with respect and compassion. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.